Hello, 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 and welcome back to the e-commerce talk. We know how much you've missed us and trust us when we say we've missed you just the same. And what an episode we have today to put us back on track. You're going to want to get a pen and paper, maybe your notes app for the next 30 minutes, because today's conversation is for anyone looking to optimize their B2B e-commerce content and create successful e-commerce marketing campaigns. Yes, today we're talking to Christopher Trapp, content strategist extraordinaire, and strapped in because his list of accomplishments are quite an impressive trip. He's been ranked in the top 100 of global CX leaders. He's ranked in the top 100 digital marketeers to follow. He's been ranked in the top uh, 10 most engaging content marketeers consistently for the past five years. Very impressive. And as of 2021, he's ranked in the top 5% of global podcasters with his podcast, Business Storytelling. And if it's not impressive enough, he's soon to be a three-time published author. Christoph, I'd like to welcome you to the show. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, you bet. Thanks for having me. Really looking forward to it. I like the term marketeer. I need to use that more often. (laughs) Yeah, we do use that a lot. (laughs) It's a fancy term. Um, So let's take a couple of minutes to unpack that impressive list. Can you talk us through your journey in content marketing thus far? How did you get started? What are you looking to achieve with your work? Yeah, you bet. Thanks for asking. So, of course, like every, like many other people, you know, it just kind of happened. I, I never went to, I didn't grow up and say I want to be a content marketeer um, or digital marketer or whatever. But uh, I actually grew up and wanted to be a journalist. And I did that for about a decade um, and, and learned how to connect with audiences, share stories. Uh, and of course, journalism is a little bit different. You know, it's there's no business goal per se, especially back then. You just shared whatever was necessary or, or newsworthy, right, as we called it, moved over into corporate communication, corporate marketing. And then at some point, we started calling it content marketing. Um, and also, of course, there's digital marketing. I'm a big fan of content marketing. And here's the reason why. Because my friends, I, I love them. But when they run ad campaigns, the second the money runs out, the ad campaign is done. And that doesn't mean I don't run ad campaigns. I do. They all go hand in hand. So don't at me about I don't I don't love ads. Um, well, I love ad campaigns. I don't love ads necessarily, unless they're relevant. But at the end of the day, you know, uh, content marketing has long-term value. So every time you share content that's relevant, that's useful, whether it's your podcast, your live stream, your articles, they can still show up down the road, you know, and it's not just a one and done campaign or an ongoing campaign. So that's kind of, uh, that's been my uh, my journey. Currently I help uh, Vox Pop Me do content strategy. Vox Pop Me does uh, video survey feedbacks for companies. So you can uh, send questions to consumers and they can give answers in their phone um, as opposed to writing them out, for example. That's great. Yeah, I mean, I echo Kat in that is an absolutely impressive list of accolades you have there. Um, So one question I do have is, what is a commonly held belief about creating B2B content that you passionately disagree with? Oh, my goodness. Uh, Where to start? How long do we have? Eight hours. Um, (laughs) So I think there's still a misperception that B2B needs to be so much more formal than B2C. And it drives me crazy. Because at the end of the day, we're all connecting with humans, you know, whether you call it H to H or P to P, whatever, I don't really care. But at the end of the day, you need to create content that's useful and that's engaging, 
that th nobody sits at their desk where I'm standing at my desk this morning. You know, nobody goes to work and says, well, I better do some research today. And I hope the content I, I look at is as dry as possible because some marketer somewhere thinks, you know, it needs to be super formal because I can't read stuff that's fun to consume. So it's just, it's crazy. And people over edit stuff, people over, you know, it, it's just like you write a good article, for example, and, uh, you know, it goes to 18 rounds of edits, including from people that have no clue why they should be editing anything. Um, so they just edit to make themselves feel good that they're part of the process. And by the time it comes out of the other end, I mean, literally, it's, you know, what comes out of the other end didn't plan that. Metaphor, but, um, so the the key is really you need to show your authentic self. I mean, that's that's the end of it. And whether you're a B2B company, whether you're whatever, it doesn't make any difference, um, you know. So, um, yeah. Stop stop creating crap, which, by the way, stands for content really annoying to people. <laughs> oh, I love that. <laughs> That's incredible. And I know for an absolute fact that we have a few people on our team that would wholeheartedly agree with you. Kat, it being one yeah, of them, for sure. My whole motto, stop being boring. <laughs> yeah. So actually, um, a really kind of good follow up to that is, you know, we also, from our side, have also been trying to do that, be more human in your business writing content, right? And so if you're speaking to a new client or um, a new company, what would you recommend their first step be in creating that kind of content for um, for their audience? Yeah, the, the first thing is you got to figure out what, why you are in business. What, what are you trying to accomplish? And that's really the first thing. And then what's your story? And if your answer only is, uh, we want to make money. Or like I talked to a CEO, I don't know, a few months ago, and I said, well, here's what I think you should do. And he says, I only want leads. I I'm like, yeah, I know. We we all want leads, but you don't start at the leads. You start at why do you exist? Who are you trying to reach? Why do you try to reach them? What's unique about you? And, and here's the thing what's about interesting about uniqueness, especially in SaaS. The competition is just outrageous, you know? So you really have to hone in on some of those things. And sometimes the uniqueness can be that you're just more likable. And the way you become more likable is you're always in front of people, right? You're always out there. You do a podcast. You do a live stream. And quite frankly, I mean, think about it this way, guys. How hard would it be for us if we were jerks? We're not, right? We're all awesome, the three of us. But if we were jerks, it's super hard to fake on a 30-minute call. You know what I mean? Like, um, so that's that's why I love podcasting. That's why I love live streaming, because you can get that uniqueness of your company out there. But you have to start there. And then the next thing is you have to start publishing. This is my favorite comment. I make it to everybody that takes their time. I say, well, this article or this podcast will never perform. And then they will say, how come? And I said, because it's not getting approved. It hasn't published. Like it can't perform until it publishes. Do you know what I mean? So you have to have a tendency to push stuff out. Sometimes, you know, you're going to be less than perfect, which doesn't mean you should make mistakes on purpose. Um, but you know, like today, I got a bad hair day. If you're watching on video, you can see my hair is not perfect today. Didn't have time to fix it. I'm bald. If you're listening on the podcast, um, <laughs> you know, so I, I can't win, but you know what I mean? Like, it's never going to be perfect. Um, so uh, you have to have a tendency to get stuff out the door. And uh, I think a lot of companies, they slow down. My favorite still is people start blogging. They blog once and they say, we're going to start blogging. 
and then they don't blog for six months. And then they say, blogging doesn't work. I'm like, because you, you've created crap, right? Literally, like, who cares that you're going to start blogging? Start blogging. And then in six months, the next blog goes, oh, we're so sorry. We haven't blogged in six months. Has anybody noticed? Well, anyway, we're going to start blogging now. And like, those are their only articles and they're crap, right? So um, you have to create value and you have to have that tendency to, to get stuff done. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's a, a pretty large theme across most businesses and is just around consistency and being able to, again, like you said, publish and publish a lot. Um, but make sure that it's meaningful at the same time, obviously. Um, that actually reminded me of um, something that a coworker of mine crossed, um, pushed across my desk yesterday and saying that 44% um, of B2B marketers say that third-party publishers are actually their most effective channel for content marketing initiatives. And I wanted to get your um, your take on that statistic. So by that, they mean they publish on other sites? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's an interesting strategy. And I always, when I build authentic storytelling, I, I totally kind of push back on it. And because I wanted to start publishing, right? And so, and there was actually another podcast, I think it was Rob Shoot. I don't know if that's how you say his last name. He's an SEO strategist. And he said, I hate to do the whole backlinking strategy. So I just tried to write stuff that will rank on its own because I hate asking for links. And so same concept, right? I build authentic storytelling and other projects on from the ground up. That's one strategy. The reason that's a good one, in my opinion, is because you're building your house on your own land. You've probably heard that metaphor before. I didn't come up with that. Um, that doesn't mean you shouldn't work with other sites. So for example, you know, I was interviewed by Forbes. So they got a whole section about what I'm talking about. They're linking to me and whatever. But I've, I, I haven't spent a lot of time necessarily publishing on other people's sites as much as I probably could, right? And that is because I want to build it on my own land as opposed to only other people's land. Now now I've built my house. Now I'm slowly starting to do that. But I, there, there is some advantage of um, using other sites because maybe they already have audience. Um, just one thing to be aware, you know, not all audience is the same audience um, or relevant audience. Just because somebody has a big number doesn't mean it's relevant to you. Um, but that is a way to definitely kind of jumpstart things if you want to. But again, you know, if you don't have people, if you can't send them anywhere, what's the point? There was also, I saw a project the other day, a few months ago, and this company wrote this long article for a site and it was a relevant site. So same concept, what you're just talking about. And then I looked at the article and I said, they don't, there's no link anywhere. And they said, oh yeah, they don't link. And I'm like, so what's the point? Like, 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 what's the point of spending whatever many hours you spend writing that thing and getting it approved? And then they don't link back. Like, is it really just brand awareness? Okay, I'll take it. How many people will see that article? Like they didn't know, right? Because I know it's hard to know, but my point is at least you got to get the link. I mean, if I'm going to spend hours and hours to write an article and you're not going to link to me, I mean, seriously, I talk, you know, local SEO, when I talk to local um, like uh, companies that sponsor sports teams, I always tell them, if you sponsor a sports team and they have a website, ask for the link. Nobody cares if they have no traffic, but that will help you with local SEO. So at the very bare minimum, get a link. You know, I mean, it's like, yeah. 100%. Wow. That's actually baffling to me that, you know, 
publications even do that, that they wouldn't offer it just up front as a a very low standard. I know, but even partners, Sam, do that sometimes. We write them articles and they don't link back. And then you have to be like, hello, we wrote this for free. <laughs> so of course I grew up in journalism, right? So I basically make a living just asking, you know, can we do this? Can we do this? How about this? Hey, why do we do this? You know, like literally that's like all I do my whole life and have done my whole life. So I was we I was actually doing a podcast um with um with Vox Pop Me and, and they were on um the show. And that show typically, from what I could see, doesn't link back from the show notes. So all those different networks, you know, like Apple and Google and whatever. But I know for a fact that those links actually still carry weight. So before it published, they do. It's super crazy, right? But it does. So I actually went back and I said, before they published, I said, hey, can you also link to this page from all those different networks? And they did, and but they never did it before. So I don't know if they just didn't think about it and nobody ever asked, but I just said, could you please link? And they said, oh yeah, no problem. And they linked from everywhere. So just ask, don't, you know, just don't be a jerk about it. Um, but I'm curious also with like publishing on different platforms, there's companies are doing tons of things to keep evolving and changing. Um, what would you say, what does evolution look like in terms of content strategy for B2B businesses? Yeah, so currently the trend I'm seeing is everybody is doing podcasts, you know. I mean, every B2B company is like, oh, if even if they're not doing it, they're at least talking about it, you know. And even if it's sometimes very briefly in the hallway. And I think it's a great strategy to do it, but you have to integrate it. And here's how I think about it. So, for example, if you do a podcast brand new network for most everybody, right? Or, or networks, because you really can go to like 16 channels at once, but you don't have any audience. So you get like 30 downloads, you know, the first few episodes. And then everybody goes, is this really worth it? Like, is it worth it to get the CEO in a room, you know, and we have 30 downloads? Probably not. So what I do is integrate it into the whole strategy. So I live stream all of my podcasts to all my social channels. And what I found most B2B companies and B2C and really everybody they've spent a tremendous amount of time building their social networks and sometimes too much because I still talk to CEOs maybe as recently as a year ago and they said, we need to spend all this time build our Facebook audience. And I'm like, why? This is so they can see our stuff. And I'm like, that's literally not how it works anymore. You know, but so people build up their networks. So take your podcast, live stream it. So now you already got who knows how many listens, you know, but it could be in the hundreds because you already have an audience. All the social networks currently um, um, give preferential treatment, we'll put it that way, to live streams because few people do them and they're new. And then you take your podcast and then you take the content and you turn it into more content, whether it's an article, whether it's a campaign, whatever. So my point is stop thinking about specific channel campaigns. Tie it all together. I know if you're a huge company, you might have five people working on each channel. That's fine. Have them collaborate. If they don't talk to each other, not a good team. You know what I'm saying? So, like, seriously, um, have people work together. Have people create things, um, not just in a vacuum. Um, you can, like, throw the content a parade. And that's, um, I, you know, I was talking. So... How big is you guys' marketing team? Ooh, um, 30 persons, I think. And is it enough people or could you use more? We could always use more. 
Always, always, right? So like the answer to that question is, I'm glad you said it actually a decent number, but whether people say three or five or 30, I've heard it as high as 80, they could always use more people. So stop crying about not having enough time and not having enough people. You could have a thousand people and it still wouldn't be enough. So, you know, just something to think about. Collaborate, make the workflow efficient, cut down the time you spend on wasting things. Examples of wasting time is chasing things. Hey, Kat, is this done? Kat, are you done? Can I get it? Are you done with this? Sam, is this done? Can I get it, please? Are you? Um, have you had a chance yet? Like literally, like if I total that time up for some people, it's like, that's like a quarter of their job, you know? And then, let, and then let's take another quarter of their job. And that quarter is meetings, you know? Ooh. And I'll give you an example. If you have to create content and, and whatever or campaigns. So the other day, um, I felt I was a little behind my schedule. And I said, how come I'm behind schedule? I don't get it. And I went back to my calendar. And on the day when I was going to start that project, I had meetings all morning. Some of them were good meetings even. But then it takes you time to get back up to speed, right? And then it takes you time to get back in the rhythm. And then you have a Slack message coming in, an email, that you know, the kids are coming home, whatever. The cats are jumping on the windowsill. Do you know what I'm saying? Like all this stuff happening. And so, but you need to find the time to be as optimized as you can be. And that's, you know, that's just my advice, especially all the bosses. Uh, I think meetings are necessary. Sometimes I'm a big fan of stand-up meetings first thing in the morning, and then people go their own ways. And then you see them again tomorrow morning, unless there's something urgent. Um, but that's kind of, uh, you need to think about how do you optimize the, the workflows. I love that. <laughs> Less meetings. But um, before we move on, I did have a quick question for you. Um, so we talk about like the evolution and people evolving their content. They have a good idea about the campaign, you know, what they want to run, et cetera, et cetera. So now that they have all of this content, it's published, it's working, but then it starts to slow down. It gets stagnant, right? So what can they do to now optimize this content? And how often do you see optimizations occurring? Well, first of all, it shouldn't become stagnant because you didn't write it in a newsy way, right? So this is probably the hardest switch to make for journalists because everything we write as a journalist is like newsy. Very little is, you know, not newsy. So don't think of yourself as a news company and everything you create should have longer term value. So I'll give you an example. I did a live stream that was very newsy and the headline for the article was not very newsy. And the first one kind of sucked, quite frankly. So the editor said, uh, I don't. I'm not. I don't love that headline. I'm like, yeah, me neither. Well, what was the headline for the life? Well, it was too newsy. It wouldn't work, right? Because it'd be outdated in like two weeks. I don't, I don't want to go update it again in two weeks. Sometimes you might do that. Sometimes it might be okay to do that. But if you get on that news hamster wheel, it's really hard to get off, right? Because you're always chasing the latest news. So sometimes you might combine articles. Sometimes you might update articles. I'll give you an example. I'm writing an article that two live stream guests are talking about the same topic. So I'm writing the one from one, but I'm probably, we'll see what they all say. I probably will take the content from the next one and combine it with that same article. I might still publish it ahead of time, depending on how timing looks and whatever, but you don't always have to write new things. 
Um, so for example, I don't know if you guys do show notes or whatever. A lot of podcasts do that. I don't, I don't really do them. Um, I do articles, you know. So when I have a podcast episode and it's an interesting topic, I might write about it as an article. And then I embed the podcast because I believe most people don't come to websites and go, oh, I wonder if Christoph published another podcast. They don't. They go, I'm looking for a specific answer. Where do I find it, right? And that's how that article shows up. And then sometimes I combine content. So for example, I wrote a big article, like a 15-minute read or something on creativity. And I quoted Seth Godin from a podcast, Adam Morgan from Adobe. Um, and then there was, I think it was Sam, can't think of her last name now. Um, there, there was some others in that article. But in the traditional podcast model, I would have done show notes for each one. I didn't. I just put them all in one big article, and then I shared the article with everybody. And everybody thought, it, you know, some people thought it was awesome to be quoted with Seth Godin. Some people thought it was awesome to be quoted with Adam Morgan. You know, it, it just, um, and Sam, I can't remember her last name. But anyway, she's a big name, too. Just can't bat with names. Um, and so, you know, that's kind of how I think about it. And go back. If you have a lot of content already, what I like to do is, um, on authentic storytelling, I um, look if I've already written about a topic. And if I have, and that article still performs, I just update it. If the article is not in the, I don't know what the right number is, whatever shows up on page one of my metrics, if it doesn't even show up there, you know, it's like the, the top 80 articles, maybe, maybe top 100, something like that. If it doesn't show up in the top 100 and it's been published for five years, it probably will not rise to the top you know, anytime soon. So I just delete it. I might repurpose some of the stuff. I might, I might not, but um, that's usually the strategy. And I think sometimes people forget about that. Good tips. Um, I heard you saying like podcasts or B2B companies starting podcasts is a big trend. Um, do you see also a lot of B2B companies starting podcasts to kind of indirectly sell or promote their e-commerce products? Well, so it's interesting because, first of all, it's you're going to have a hard time if you're just on the show and say, hey, um, buy my hat. Here's the link. Buy my whatever. Buy my SaaS software. Like, you can't, like, who's going to listen to that for 45 minutes, right? Nobody. So you have to actually find, yeah. So the, the short answer is yes, but not by talking about the product. So it has to be a lot more subtle. Um, you have to offer value. You have to, you know, talk about, um, related topics, you know, what problem are you solving? What what's what's something that's happening in an industry? And then very subtly, you can you know um, mention the product, or if you do a video live stream, you can just have it on screen. That's what we actually. This is not SaaS, but or e-commerce, but you know, Charlene Walters just uh, Walters just published her book, and we had a launch party on Amazon, right? And we just live streamed. And you could buy her book. And like her book was on the screen the whole time. It said order now. But we barely talked about buying the book. You know, we just talked about, okay, how do you launch your inner entrepreneur? You know, and that's the same concept. You have to just talk about related things. Um, and then, you know, hopefully, um, you know, if it's of interest to people, they will consider buying your product. And the other thing I think people forget about, who whoever is in the buying mindset all the time. Hardly anybody. I was going to show you something. So, for example, I love these hats. 
you guys can't see me on the podcast, but I just put a Washington football team hat on. And here's the thing. They cost 30 bucks, but I hardly ever buy them the first time I see them. And that's just 30 bucks. If you're selling a software tool that cost me $30,000 a year, do you really truly honestly believe I will buy it after looking at it one time? No, <laughs> right? There need to be multiple touch points. And the other thing in B2B, you know, it's the family model of buying, right? I buy a $30 hat. I don't have to have a committee meeting with my wife, but if it's the tenth, <laughs> if it's the tenth head that to arrive, you know, in the week, certainly she will say something at some point. But in B two B, especially, you sell anything. Um, people will there's committee meetings, you know. So that's how podcasts can help you. They can help you be top of mind. They can help you be relevant. Same with video, you know. Like if I'm buying something from you and CAD, let's say you call me and you say, hey. Oh, I saw you interested in whatever. I say, hey, cool. You're the gal from the podcast. <laughs> awesome. Do you know what I'm saying, though? Like yeah. that's, and I'm I know sure. that's not actually scalable because you can't have the person on the podcast call everybody, but there is value for the brain. And that's another reason why you want to have guests on and different people from the company as well. We have had a similar experience, but not for buying products. I would say like, if you appear in a lot of videos, people start recognizing you. We've had like candidates be like, come in the office before COVID and be like, hey, that's Kat. She's on the videos. <laughs> so it's so it's this is actually a concept that Marcus Sheridan discussed in detail in the visual sale. And so, you know how salespeople, um, they spend, I think it's 80 percent of their time answering 20 percent of the questions. Right. And so Marcus and the other guys from Vidyard, I don't remember his name now, as you already know, I'm bad with names. <laughs> and he, um, they talk about, they said, so why don't you make a video? And then he goes, well, everybody pushes back. Well, will somebody watch the video? He goes, yes, because the salesperson gets on the call with you and you're trying to buy something. Like, let's say you're trying to buy something for 30,000 bucks or something. Are you going to spend five minutes to watch a quick video with some of the most, you know, like something that helps you? know more about what you should know? Yes, absolutely. Would I watch a five-minute video to buy another hat? Probably not. $30,000 e-commerce product? Yes. You know what I mean? Decisions. Um, you were talking about it already a bit like live podcasting, but your new book is actually coming out in March and it is about live podcasting. We already had a, a glimpse of it, Sam and I, and we're excited. So I'm I'm hoping also our listeners will be. Um, and I'm actually personally curious about the concept of live podcasting. If you could go through it and explain it to us and, of course, to our listeners, too. Yeah. So as I mentioned, I think a little bit already, what I noticed is every, a lot of people are talking about doing podcasts. And I, you know, I think that's fine. I think people should do them. I think they are good. But the next step up to make it even easier, in my opinion, is to just live stream it. First of all, you already have an audience, you know, get in front of those audience members. And um, why wouldn't you want to do it? The other thing is this is more of a selfish um, thing, really, honestly, as a producer, but it also works for the audience. But you take the power of the over edit away from people when you go live, because basically you can't edit anything, right? And because you say it, I can't edit it. It was already live. Like, why am I going to edit it for 30 people if you just set it to 800, you know? So 
Um, I think it's a fantastic way of doing that. It's also a fantastic way of getting a lot of content. So for example, you know, we're talking for 30 minutes or whatever, and basically you can use different sound bites. You can use, you know, there's so much stuff you can use. Um, and it's really, I think it helps with authenticity. It helps with being a, uh, I don't want to say trendsetter, but front runner perhaps in your industry because very few companies are doing it. Very, A lot of companies are doing podcasting, but it's going to get harder and harder and harder. So if you're doing it, this is a very easy way to, to get ahead of that. And the production, it's not that much harder, quite frankly. In fact, so I was what, as I was thinking about, I'm like, are we doing video this morning? I'm like, do I have to shave? Do I have to shower? You know what I mean? And like the last time... I did a podcast on somebody else's show where we didn't do video. I don't even remember. Like most everybody does video, even when they do audio podcasts. So if you're doing video already, just live stream it. And I say just. There is actually like the first few times you do it, there's a lot of things to consider. There's a lot of things to think about. So, for example, when I do it my, my own and I'm the producer, host and everything, I mean, it's like. Like I'm pushing buttons, I'm talking, I'm trying to listen. There's a lot going on. Um, but, you know, the return, in my opinion, is just, it's so much bigger. And um, there's so many easy, easy-ish ways to do it now. So that's that's why I turned that into a book. I just decided to do it in January, honestly. And it's now late February, middle of March when it comes out. But I had most of the content written. And then I just put it into um, a format in a book, rewrote some things, updated some things, and, you know, uh, the block-to-book strategy, basically. That's impressive timeline as well. <laughs> you started writing in January. You already have it. Wow. Um, so, actually, I, I also curious, um, how do you live podcast? Do you use YouTube? We, I've seen a few people use YouTube to podcast as well, but I don't think that's that bad. There's plenty of different tools you can use. So, if you don't, you know whatever, use whatever you want. But I use Switcher Studio on my iPad and then I um, produce it on there. And basically everything is on there. I can push buttons to bring people in, put lower thirds up. You can do like an intro music. It's kind of cool. Honestly, I think people are usually impressed when, when you do that. And then I use Restream. And so you could use Restream on its own as well if you don't have an iPad or you don't want to use two tools. And then I use Restream. You can push it to up to 30 channels. Many of those channels are not necessarily relevant to marketers. Honestly, they're like gaming channels I've never heard of. But there's probably about eight to 10 that are. And so I currently live stream to Amazon Live, um, Twitter and Periscope, right? That's really the same thing. And Periscope, of course, is going away at the end of March. And uh, YouTube and LinkedIn. So that's what I'm currently um, streaming to at the same time. And now I actually learned, I figured out how to schedule them at the same time. And so what happens is you schedule them. So I just did one for tomorrow and it's already live on LinkedIn, you know, and what happens is always make sure there's some good calls to action on those posts, because I've now noticed that there's like hundreds of people who see those posts as well. So it's kind of like you already get a bang out of your live stream before you even go live, right? Because you schedule it and it's public. Same on YouTube. Um, I didn't do Facebook. Really, it's... Um, so the, the packages on uh, Restream, you can stream for like for, up to three channels for free. 
certain channels. I think it's like Twitter, YouTube, LinkedIn, whatever, not a Facebook page. And then the next level up is four. So I wanted Amazon Live. So I got the next level up. And then the next level up is like nine. So I don't necessarily want to pay for five more just because I want to stream to Facebook. If I had five more I wanted to go to, I probably would do it. Um, so that's the only reason I don't stream to Facebook, um, you know, because of how they broke it up. But overall, it they're easy tools. I'm not, I don't think I'm necessarily a technology expert, um, but they're super easy to set up, you know, and, and then uh, you still have to plan. That's just the technology side of things. You still need to know what you're going to talk about, how long you're going to talk about it. Um, you know, uh, what's the flow, those kind of things. I think I have one last question or two more questions. Um, so you're an expert in crafting stories. What would be a tip you have for B2B companies to craft their story on their e-commerce site, a story that converts, that makes people buy? Well, first of all, you got to be clear what the what it is you're solving for people. So really hit that home, you know, what, what's the problem you're solving for people? Um, and so it has to be succinct. And, and also, I know companies currently use this. They use a lot of superlatives, right? We are the best. This is the industry-leading product, whatever. And maybe that still works today. But my prediction continues to be that that will stop working at some point. Because when everybody says it, at some point, even the dumb consumers or dumb B2B buyers will catch on to it, right? And maybe they already have. But um, make sure it's succinct. Make sure it's to the point and somehow address the problem that people actually have. And what's interesting about that is, you know, you have to find out what are people's problems. I mean, maybe you have to do a little market research. Maybe you have to um, ask people. Maybe you have to test things. Sometimes, here's the reality of things. As much as I like to say that a good story will sell your crappy or unnecessary product, it won't right? Your product needs to solve something for the consumer um, or whoever buys it. And then, you know, your message kind of goes off of that. So it, some people don't think it, some people say it doesn't start with product. Um, you know, marketing is not product led, but I kind of think it is because I mean, I can, it's easy for me to spin a story around a good product. It's a lot harder to do that for a product that's horrible. And the other problem is even if I find a way to market a bad product, it's never going to sell again. I think it goes back to exactly what you said earlier. It's like the way that you can't fake it as a horrible human. It's You can't fake it as a horrible product, at least not for very long. So yeah, I, I completely and absolutely wholeheartedly agree with that. Me too. Uh, my last question was, um, thank you. Uh, if you could recommend one expert in the field that we should speak to next, who would you recommend we talk to? Oh, there's so many. I mean, obviously, everybody that I recommend, I always invite them on my podcast. Um, you know, as you might imagine, 350 some episodes now. Robbie Baxter is probably a good one. She uh, talks about subscription based models. Um, fantastic interview. Um, the, I think the book is for the forever transaction. And when I talk to her, she says, so my for, you know, my husband is my forever transaction. <laughs> so she gets some, um, a little personality there as well. But basically, you know, it's an interesting model because we, uh, many of us buy subscriptions, right? We don't own things anymore, but we just have a subscription. And I mean, that's true for me, 
right? I mean, even, yeah. So uh, I think that's an interesting thing, especially for uh, e-commerce companies. Um, you know, how do you get people to, to sign up for a subscription? And however that looks, I mean, I'm thinking of like my Amazon, every six months we have the subscribe and save come by, you know, and it's like the, the mail lady has to back into the driveway because it's 200 pounds of stuff, you know? So um, what, what e-commerce company doesn't want to set that up? So thank you so much for sharing your insights, Christoph. It's been very helpful. Um, if our listeners would like to get in contact with you, listen to your podcast or get one of your books, where can they find you at? Yeah, of course, everything is available on AuthenticStorytelling.net, the podcast, business storytelling podcast. I'm not going to say their name because they're going to go off, but you can ask any other digital assistants just to please go ahead and play it and they'll do it because they're nice. <laughs> Awesome. Well, as always, if you have any questions on today's episode, or if you'd like to hear more from one of our speakers, feel free to reach us at e-commerce talk at sauna-commerce.com. And don't forget to subscribe to the e-commerce talk on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your podcast player of choice. And if you like the e-commerce talk that much, make sure to give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. Until next time. Bye. Let's get to talking about e-commerce.